Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern, or catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we have a special show for you today. We have as our special guest, Cardinal Raymond Burke. He is, uh, of all the prelates of the church, one of my, my great favorites for his staunch defense of the truths of our faith, especially in this age where, where truth is. Um, considered something so elusive <laughs> that we can't possibly find it. Well, I don't think that's true, and neither does Cardinal Burke. He was appointed in 2010 by Pope Benedict XVI. He was named a cardinal then. Uh, he writes and speaks widely on Roman Catholic canon law, on the Holy Eucharist, on the devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and particularly this week, which is the week when we celebrated the Assumption of, of, our, of our Blessed Lady, of our Blessed Mother. He has a, a great devotion to Our Lady of Guadalupe, and 15 years ago, I think the anniversary was this past month, he founded the Shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe in La Crosse, uh, Wisconsin. And that's a, a beautiful shrine that uh, participates with, with the other shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe, the main one in Mexico City, as, as, a, as a center of pilgrimage. Many thousands of pilgrims visit the shrine in La Crosse um, as though they were visiting and in the same spirit that they would visit the Shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico City. So we're very glad to have him today. No, first, before before we go to that, I wanted to, to mention something that's in the news that to me was very disturbing, and I'm sure you'll find it disturbing too. In Massachusetts, a Catholic couple was denied by the state the the ability the ability to adopt uh, through foster care because uh, because of their religious beliefs, which happen to be just Catholic run of the mill beliefs. This this is this was done because they are not they were felt to not be possible fit parents for a child or a teen that might identify as non heterosexual um, and this brings us to a very this brings us to a, a, a very a difficult place in in our American history because since the uh, since same sex marriage was legalized there there was this danger that people who don't who who can't accept the propriety, you know, of these of, of same-sex marriage, for instance, and same-sex relations, um, would be put out of the public square and not allowed to participate. Uh, Justice Alito said in his dissent to Obergefell, which was the that case uh, that decided same-sex marriage, he wrote, "It will be used to vilify Americans who are unwilling to assent to the new orthodoxy." In the course of its opinion, the majority compares traditional marriage laws to laws that denied equal treatment for African Americans and women. The implications of this analogy analogy will be exploited by those who are determined to stamp out every vestige of dissent. I think we can we can take a moment um, to pray for all people of faith living in this new reality. And also pray for this one couple in Massachusetts that their case, which is being taken up by Beckett, Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, um, will find will find uh, justice and they'll be allowed to adopt even though they are Catholics. Welcome to the show, Your Eminence. Well, thank you for inviting me. Ever since we started this radio show, which I think we have about 250 episodes so far, 
we've really wanted you to be on because here at the Catholic Association, we're great admirers of Cardinal Burke and all the wonderful work you've done for the church over the years. You don't remember me, uh, Your Eminence, but we met. You ordered my dinner for me one day, one night. In, oh my goodness. <laughs> yes, in a Roman, in a, Ro- a beautiful Roman restaurant uh, outside on the Via Appia. I forget the name oh, yeah. now. Archaeology, something like that. Oh, archaeology, yes. Yes, a beautiful place, and and you ordered my my dinner. You you suggested I have something, and then you ordered it in your beautiful Italian. And I talked about that for years because <laughs> <laughs> Cardinal Burke ordered my dinner. So it's wonderful to see you again. Well, and, thank you. And and uh, wonderful to 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 be able to say that here at Conversations with Consequences, we we. We, we very much appreciate you. Well, thank you very much and, and pray for me. Yes, you are, you are in my prayers, definitely. And I hope that all our listeners also include you in their yes, prayers. Yes, I hope so too. Um, Your Eminence, uh, this week when, the, when, when, our, when our radio show airs, it will be the Feast of the Assumption. That's to so many of us Catholics, as, as it should be, that is a feast that is, very, that is, that is a, a beautiful feast day of the church. Um, which tells us that Our Lady is is present, body and soul, in heaven, and is watching for watching out for us, just look just like our mothers did when we were little, but now in a way that's much more, so many more possibilities. What she can do for yes. us in heaven. Uh, it's a beautiful doctrine of the faith, and one that gives us so much consolation and encouragement because we know that our our blessed mother will never fail to be our mother, and that from her place with our Lord in in heaven. She's watching over us and trying always to bring us closer to him. So it's really a, a wonderful feast. Father, you have a very a very beautiful connection to Our Lady. Um, you built and, and dedicated the Shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe in La Crosse, Wisconsin. I, yes. I, I grew up in Mexico, and Our Lady of Guadalupe is... is She's the queen of Mexico. She's, yes. but she's the queen of our of our. She's the uh, of our entire um, continent, right? Surely, yes. Pope Saint John Paul II insisted. He said, "America is one continent divided artificially by a man-made canal." But that Our Lady, when she came to Mexico City, in a certain way, in the center of the con- continent, she came for all of America, not just for Central or Latin America but also for North America. And that was one of my inspirations when I wanted to build a shrine to Our Lady. I thought uh, we began the work after the Holy Father had issued his letter on the church in America and which he made that point so strongly. And then I thought, no, the the title for Our Lady at the shrine will be Our Lady of Guadalupe. Mm -hmm. So she's the Empress of the Americas. And as as you say, she unites... um, all the land masses that make up the Americans, sure. Americas, and all the people that live in her live if, if live in Amer- in the Americas, under her mantle, and and that's a very beautiful image. Um, do you think of her mantle when you think of Our Lady, like we do? I oftentimes, in fact, say that to to people in closing letters and things that I I pray that Our Lady will either hold them in her embrace or that she will have them cover them with her mantle under the protection of, of her mantle. And uh, I had a very direct and poignant experience of this myself. I was very ill in August of 2021 with a life-threatening case of the contagion of the COVID virus and actually was put on a ventilator for nine days 
and sedated. I have no memory of those nine days, but when I came out from under the sedation, I had this very almost palpable sense that Our Lady had been holding on to me, had, had, had me under her mantle during that whole time, and that was she was the one who saved me because the doctors, in fact, had had given up hope. They they didn't believe there was anything more that could be done to save my life. But in fact, through so many prayers, and I believe especially through the intercession of Our Lady of Guadalupe, uh, my my life was spared. So I, but uh, and so many pilgrims who come to the shrine uh, here tell me the same thing that they're praying before the image of Our Lady, before the, the, it's right above the tabernacle and just behind the altar of sacrifice, and that they have a strong sense of her presence with them, giving them comfort and strength. Do you, do you think that Our Lady revealed herself in a, in a very special and particular way when she revealed herself to, to San Juan Diego? What, what, what do you think about that way that she presented herself in that moment? It, it's, a, it's a rather unusual apparition in many, many respects. Uh, first of all, from the very first moment that she encounters St. Juan Diego, as you, as you know well, she began on January 9th, excuse me, on December 9th, and, and the last apparition was on the 12th. But from the very first apparition, she identifies herself immediately as the as the Virgin Mother of God, and and she also immediately announces her purpose that she wants a chapel built, a little house as she said built, in which she can show uh, Christ, her divine Son, to all the people, uh, in in all His mercy and His His love. the The account of the apparitions is something very beautiful to read. It's not very long, and it goes back to the very time of the apparitions written by Antonio Valeriano, a good friend of St. Juan Diego, the messenger. But yes, so that's that's rather unusual that everything is very definite and clear and takes place in a few days. And on the 12th, of course, of December, when St. Juan Diego, the bishop, had asked him for a sign from Our Lady that it was really she was appearing, and he had gathered these beautiful roses uh, on the top of Tepeyac Hill, which at that day was winter, and it was a, just a thorny, rocky place. There were no beautiful roses growing there, but he found them and brought them down. Our Lady arranged them as mantle. When he opened it uh, to present these roses to Our Lady, this is also most unusual. Uh, uh, Our Lord imprinted her image on the mantle, and that is still today uh, visible in her her shrine in Mexico City, and, and, and that mantle, which was made of cactus cloth and should have disintegrated within uh, 40 or 50 years, is still intact. And the image of Our Lady is on the mantle, uh, the tilma, as it's uh, called, uh, in a way that no one is able to explain. It's been examined. Uh, it's not paint. It's, it's something very, very particular. Uh, indeed, the hand of God is written Remy. So, yes, uh, Guadalupe stands out among all the apparitions as one of the the, the most wonderful. Pope Benedict XIV in the pontiff during the 18th century, uh, a representation came from Mexico to present him with a beautiful image of Our Lady Guadalupe and to tell him the story of her apparitions. And he exclaimed in the words of the psalm, God has not done thus for every nation to indicate uh, what favor 
God had shown to the the people of Mexico and to all of America and really to all of us uh, by the apparition of Our Lady. When Our Lady decided to to make herself manifest on on Tepeyac, she she chose a moment that was um, um, an, an extraordinarily significant moment in the history of, of the Americas. The moment when Christ had come to our shores, had been brought by the, the conquistadores, um, but there was that struggle of, of, I mean, yes, there was a military struggle and, and everything, but the struggle was to, to um, explain, to bring the gospel to the land, to the Americas, and to have it make itself known to people who hadn't been prepared by, you know, generations of civilization to receive it they had to they were they were tabula rasa in a sense right um and yes there there were uh, certain elements in in the aztec religion that was the religion at that time which uh, uh, would have prepared them in a certain way but they wouldn't have had any idea uh, about the redemptive incarnation and that was the great work of the franciscan friars who who came and uh uh, and, and then there was not only the evangelization of the uh, of the Native Americans, uh, and that was remarkable because in a uh, space of the of I think eight years, some nine million uh, of the Native people were converted and baptized. Uh, but also that the conquistadores, the, the Spanish explorers and settlers. Would recognize the equal human dignity of the of the Native Americans and respect that, and then we have another situation going on, which was was truly uh, diabolical, was the practice of human sacrifice. The the yes. Aztec religion had been uh, corrupted by a, a belief that the god uh, required uh, human blood. So that the sun would rise every morning, and so they they literally uh, slaughtered thousands of people on these pyramids and tore out their open their <clears throat> sternums with a sharp blade and then tore out their hearts uh, to a, so so called to appease the gods. Well, with the coming of Our Lady of Guadalupe, that practice ceased, and uh, and then as you said so beautifully at the beginning. The people were drawn together to form a proper uh, mestiza culture, a mixed culture, uh, uh, with the, the the Spanish and the Native Americans, and and all the people recognizing that their mother is Our Lady of Guadalupe, the Virgin Mother of God. Mm-hmm. That's so beautiful. And she, when she talks to San Juan Diego, she she calls him my little son. Yes, and it's yes. so pretty, and and that's how yeah. Mexicans speak to each other. They say "mijo," "mijito," "mijita," and it's a very, it's a very beautiful, tender thing. That's so, that's so human. Like she entered into this humanity, this human relationship of motherhood and childhood, and to all of us, it, it means so much. And I, and bringing it to your, to your beautiful um, shrine that you built in La Crosse fifteen years ago. I feel like, and maybe you can elaborate on this, that this is another moment, um, another very important moment that where uh, the Americas have to be evangelized all over again, and that Our Lady is a crucial, crucial element. Well, one of the, apart from the exhortation of Pope St. John Paul II, that in, that in America, on the continent of America, 
that Our Lady should be honored, particularly under her title of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Uh, there was also, in my mind, the anti-life culture, the anti-family culture, which had becoming was becoming ever more uh, predominant in in our nation and in, in other nations as well. And Our Lady completely purifies the, us of these of these anti-life and anti-family anti-family notions because she is the great mother of life. She's the one who who teaches us to respect the divine law written in our human nature and written in all of creation. And uh, this is what happened, in fact, in in Mexico at that time. The conflict between the conquistadores and the native people ceased, and this practice, horrible practice of of, uh, of human sacrifice, ceased. And so, and uh, and um, I hope it's not too um, aggressive of me to say this, but I feel that we are practicing human sacrifice on a tremendous scale. No, no, it's, absurd. it's not aggressive at all. I mean, this is. Uh, infanticide in these and we have political leaders who are in favor of of the killing of of infants in the womb even in the birth canal at the moment of their being born i mean this is uh, this is this is human sacrifice of the worst kind and uh, you know you're you're quite correct I, I feel very surprised that more people don't recognize that, that they don't recognize that children are being sacrificed on the altar of adult, um, just lasciviousness, really, and, and adult disorder and adult irresponsibility. And uh, the children are being sacrificed much the same way that the Aztecs um, exactly. practiced. Exactly. People want to be able to do whatever they want, and then should a, a child be conceived then they think that they can kill that child. Well, that's completely wrong. And uh, so Our Lady teaches us to respect every human life from the moment of conception, the moment of natural death, and uh, and to promote and foster human life. And uh, at the Shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe and the Cross, one of the beautiful areas is the Memorial to the Unborn. And there's a oh. beautiful... A bronze statue created by a Mexican artist of, of Our Lady Guadalupe seated and holding three little infants in her arms. Uh, and uh, and the whole area is, is dedicated to the gospel of life. And, and many people have, have inscribed in that uh, beautiful area the names of children that they've lost through miscarriage. And, uh, and then uh, this is also a great message about the evil of abortion and uh, uh, so that's a very powerful area and many people like to spend time there praying many people are affected by abortion that, that uh, and and they carry those wounds always and um, oh, i think it, encounters you know, like it, this with with uh, these shrines and and with a, a real experience of god's mercy that we see in our lady can, can remember, cure them what meant, Yes, I remember one time when I was a young priest, someone said to me, it must be very difficult to convince a woman who's committed abortion uh, that it is a sin. And I said, no, the great difficulty is to convince them that God could ever forgive them. Mm -hmm. Because these these poor women, either in part by their own 
wrong judgment at all, but also many times pressured uh, by various people to to have an abortion. Uh, they suffer intensely, and it, it be, it's very difficult for them to understand how God could forgive that they acted against that fundament, fundamental their fundamental nature to be a mother. Uh, you were mentioning before, and I, I too, I see how can people not see this great evil of the of a million abortions more or less a year in our country. And I think it is because the culture tries to mask the reality and people uh, don't think about what is actually happening in an abortion. But when they are brought up uh, close to the reality, then they, they don't, they wouldn't want to have an abortion. For instance, these ultrasounds that are done now of a pregnant woman, when the women see this and their husbands see this, then they understand that abortion is, it's not simply removing some growth from your body, but this is a living human being that's in the process of developing and growing in the womb to be born. And, and uh, so I think that uh, uh, we need to, to speak openly and plainly about what abortion is and, uh, and also what the gift of human life is. Um, Your Eminence, uh, your, your, your shrine, how is it connected to the Basilica in, in Mexico City? Is, is, it a, is it a place of pilgrimage in, in the same, at the same category, at the same level? Yes, yeah, so uh, some years ago, uh, after having talked with the rector of the, the Basilica in Mexico City, I wrote to the Pontifical Council at that time, it was called the Pontifical Council for the New Evangelization, and asked whether the same grace is gained by a pilgrimage to uh, the Shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico City could be granted to the pilgrims who make a pilgrimage to her shrine in La Crosse. The reason I asked that the principal reason was that there were many faithful Mexican Catholics, especially who had asked a favor from Our Lady, and what if the favor were granted, they promised they'd make a pilgrimage but it's it's not so easy for them to to go back to make that pilgrimage, and the congregation or the the pontifical council responded favorably. So I mean, we've always had a strong bond with with the 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 basilica in Mexico City. In fact, uh, uh, there's a statue when you enter the on the grounds of the of the shrine that uh, the then Archbishop of Mexico City, Norberto Rivera Carrera. A statue of St. Juan Diego, he gave to us as a sign of the bond. And then also he sent a very, very big piece of the rock of Tepeyac Hill, which is uh, by the side altar to St. Juan Diego. And he came when we had the 10th anniversary of the of the uh, uh, dedication of the church. Uh, Cardinal Rivera Carrera came and spent five days at the shrine and it was a wonderful celebration. But the important thing is for people to know that they can uh, fulfill the promise of a pilgrimage to Our Lady of Guadalupe by making a pilgrimage to the shrine here at La Crosse. I'm glad to hear that, and I, I'm glad our listeners are are hearing that. I've, I I often speak to to friends uh, that have that go to Medjugorje, for instance, or they they travel yes. all the way to Lourdes, and and these are very very costly and, and uh, trips to make your pilgrimage, and they're wonderful. Um, and then I suggest Mexico City. I said it's just so close, and it's Our Lady of Guadalupe, the Empress of, of the Americas. So how wonderful to know that you can have that same, 
um, yes, spiritual of course, favor. We, we, we're always encouraging pilgrimages to uh, Mexico City because there the pilgrim is directly in front of the miraculous stelma. But in the case, uh, in the meantime, pilgrimages to the, her shrine at, at La Crosse also uh, bring tremendous graces. Will you be having a big celebration for the for the anniversary for the fifteenth year anniversary? Yeah, we, we we did have it already on the thirty first of July. That's oh. the day that the, the basilica was or the the shrine church was consecrated, and we had a very beautiful celebration. And even though it was a a weekday, a Monday, the church was full, and there was a wonderful a group of pilgrims from all over. There were pilgrims from the south and uh, the west, and of course the area. Uh, in the Midwest, and we it was really a, a beautiful celebration. Car- uh, Cardinal Burke, I'm sure when, when you were building the Basilica, you probably had pushback from people saying things like, because right now, I'll tell you, in our parish, we're building we're, our, a big, beautiful church. It'll be ready in September or October, and there's people who criticize, and they say, this money should be spent on the poor, or this money could be spent on social outreach. Um, I, I'm sure that you had similar similar experiences with oh. people that were negative. Um, do you yes, feel? Uh, but I was gonna I was gonna suggest that you must feel that the um, that the benefits that are accruing to all of us by the presence of of the shrine uh, are definitely worth it. Oh yes, the, the, right from the beginning there were very critical people. Also, people were very enthusiastic. And uh, even to this day, some people say exactly what you said. Well, this money should be given to the poor or given for Catholic schools or whatever. And my point is the point that our Lord made. He said, uh, the poor you will have always with you. In other words, we're always to be about the work of caring for the poor. But we, but you, you won't always have me with you. In other words, we have to show special honor, do the most beautiful things, our Lord to be close to him, and then he will help us to do what we need to do to to feed the poor, to educate the the ignorant, and so forth. Uh, and that's exactly what happens. I mean, I know so many of the pilgrims here at the shrine, and they're people faithful who are deeply involved in the in many works of charity, of education, and many missionary works. Mm-hmm. Well, Cardinal Burke, I, I, it, our time is up, and, and I don't want to keep you. I know you're a very busy man. I, I can't thank you enough for making time for us, and mm. I, you, I, I, you're in my prayers, and, and I encourage well, other thank listeners you so much. to pray for you but, and all, all the good that you do to, to the church and to all her faithful. Well, thank you so much. I'm so pleased to meet you, especially that you're a Guadalupana. Yeah. <laughs> Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie from the Catholic Association. We are thrilled to have Carrie Gress with us. She's an old friend of the show. She's one of the beautiful minds behind Theology of Home. And they are out with a new edition called Theology of Home at the Sea. These are beautiful books for perusing and for coffee tables, for sharing with friends. Carrie has a PhD in philosophy. And she joins us with a sneak peek at her new book 
as we are rounding out the summer months. Welcome to the show, Carrie. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you Carrie, you, you, we love to hear about theology of the home <laughs> on Conversations with Consequences, and we had to have you on because you have a new installment of Theology of the Home, and it's called At the Sea. I do, yes. Um, theology of Home 3, At the Sea, is what we just released, and it's a little bit different format than the previous books. We were actually just focused on a main theme instead of really digging into the elements of home or homemaking or whatnot. So anyway, it was just, it's been a really fun project to work on. Now remind our listeners, what is Theology of the Home? What's the idea, your, your motivating foundational idea there? Yeah, Theology of Home is really based on this idea that our homes are meant to be a foretaste of heaven, that we are, um, they're, they're a place where we become saints, really, and um, that's the purpose of them. Um, and what we really have tried to do with these is help women understand um, those essential principles, but also help us understand ourselves as, as women. Um, it feels like there's been just a huge loss of what it means to be a woman in the culture today. And so we're trying to provide women with both a visual as well as mental kind of grammar for, you know, understanding of ourselves as women and how do we think through that and talk through that and, and speak about it in ways that, that make sense and that are compelling um, as opposed to what we are getting in the culture, which of course is, is really erasing women. Um, Carrie, when, when I think about, and I think a lot of people are this, are this way too, when I think about my home being, um, a breeding ground for saints, right? Like for me and my husband and the children and whoever happens to be coming in and out of our home. Um, I, I, tend to, I tend to focus on inter, the interpersonal relationships at home, like how we treat each other, the courtesy with which we treat each other, the, the, the love which we bear each other, the peace that is in our home. But in theology of the home, um, you open up a whole other, a whole other way, you know, a whole other section uh, of this making your home a breeding ground for saints, which is in the, the visual aspect of the home, the way the home affects you in its order and in its and, and, and its visual beauty. Why is, do you think that that's why do we tend to not put so much emphasis on that in our heads when we think about the, <laughs> the importance of the home? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Um, and one of the reasons we got into this was just recognizing how important the home is for really everybody um, and how much women are spending in particular on their homes. It's, you know, it's billions of dollars goes into this industry. And for us, it wasn't really a question of just vanity. Obviously, there are people that are doing these things for va- vanity or to you know keep up with the Joneses or whatnot. Um, but we know that the home is is really important and vital um, for our life as a family and whatnot. So um, yeah, I think your articulation is great and super important and all those elements of, of working on relationships and, and peace and hospitality and all of that goes into it. Um, but it's also there's some some practical elements that can go into it. And, you know, these are things that don't have to be expensive. It's, you know, basic things like bringing order to a home or, you know, in my case, getting rid of the piles or um, whatnot. And um, so those things can can speak volumes, I think, in a home that where where all of these other elements are really nurtured the elements that you mentioned um, to people that come in from the outside, that they're going to pick up on that. Even if it's not a home that's, you know, elegantly laid out, it, it, it still is going to speak volumes to what the home, what the people in the home love and value and think is important. And, and that gets conveyed to the guest. And, and what does it do for us who live in our home? What is, what is the appearance of our home, the order of our home do for us spiritually? Well, I, I mean, I think there's certainly that element of, um, you know, order is, is brings harmony. It's, you know, this is one of these great elements of what beauty is. Order is a, is a part of that symmetry. 
Um, so there's a, that piece, but certainly it also has a lot to do with what, what we fill our homes up with. Um, you know, there's going to be a big difference between a beautiful piece of art versus, you know, a poster that you got when you were in your eight in the 1980s or something, you know, <laughs> there's, um, very distinct things are going to be evoked in a soul that's, that sees those things day in and day out. Um, there's a great story about, you know, in history that the, the Russians always had an icon in their homes. And um, when the communists came in, they didn't know where to look in the homes because you always reverenced the icon when you came in. Um, but they always saw everybody looking at the clocks. So they started looking at the clocks and reverencing a clock. Um, so wow. anyway, I think it's those kinds of transitions that have taken place in our modern culture that, you know, we've replaced an icon with a clock. Um, and that tells us a lot about modernity and where our focus is and productivity and whatnot and, and how we've moved away from the spiritual. Um, so it can be very simple things like um selecting a, a beautiful icon and there's plenty of them that are not incredibly expensive anymore that can be purchased in places like etsy um that we can put on our home that you know you see when you come in the home or leave the home or, or whatnot so there's a lot of really simple ways that we can make our home feel a lot more like a sanctuary um when we start thinking about it i think more deeply you connected it uh this theology of home you connected it to our womanhood what's the connection there yeah, well, I mean, the reality is, is homes don't make themselves, and um, there has to be a homemaker. And of course, that term has been very out of vogue for a long time. And actually, I'm, I'm researching a new book right now and just really digging into the roots of how it actually came from um, the Soviets. It was really the Soviets that said that the home was no longer important. And we've really absorbed this dramatically over the last 50, 60 years and not really realized that, it, you know, we've got these um, communist dictates that have come down to us and are, are, have become very popular and that we've really latched onto. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's um, that it's very much tied to women because of course w women are the first home for their children um, biologically. And I, I think in a lot of ways, our homes reflect us to, to a certain extent, um, our characters and personalities and, and um, the different attributes that we have. Um, so yeah, I think our, our, the home is just incredibly important for understanding woman. That's not to say that men don't help out in it, but this is, you know, we're trying to balance things out a little bit because of course it's become so taboo to speak about women in the home um, and go back to this, this idea that, you know, all the things that people do in the home have become popular again. So when why don't you... we just be, mm -hmm. talk about, so why don't we just talk about homemaking again, instead of allowing this to be a communist taboo that we've, we've been living with. I love that connection to communism. I mean, who knows how many things we do because the communists taught us, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> but no, that is a, no. I mean, that's, that's the one, that's one thing they do immediately is they wreck the family and the home mm -hmm. and that, Absolutely. that, that nucleus where the, where the, the family hearth, right? They, 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 they tear it apart um, exactly. so that the state can be everything. Mm -hmm. Um, you exactly. know, when you when you go into a man's house, a man who lives by himself, if, you know, maybe he's a dorm, uh, a boy in a dorm or a young man in a dorm, but or a man who goes by himself, you look at each other, you and your friends and you say, this ho this house needs a woman's touch. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Things are not looking, yeah. things might be orderly, they might be clean, but there's a harmony missing when a woman's not around. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I think generally it is. I, but I can think of certainly designers who, you know, have have incredible eyes as, as well. So, um, yeah, but there's there's a lot to be said for the woman's touch um, in so many ways. And uh, I think I'm one of those women that I'm not a great decorator. So I have a lot of um, admiration for women who are. I think it's just an amazing 
skill to be able to bring together things and style them and just make look amazing you know to take I could take the same objects and move them around all day long and not come up with something <laughs> as beautiful as, as some of these women that I know so I, I just admire it so much and I think that it really is a great gift that, that we give up our families when we can we can provide these things. Women also seem to have a, a greater uh, a greater source inside themselves of this desire to to go a little extra further in the home. So for instance, my husband and I always laugh about the number of pillows on beds. Right? <laughs> and it's it's definitely on the on the on the X on the X chromosome. You need two X's apparently to have more than three pillows on a bed. Because a man's like, that's enough pillows and woman's like, no, we need more pillows to round it out and to make it symmetric. <laughs> And men yes. are like, no, I don't want to go to bed and have to, you know, take off 12 pillows off my bed and then range them all back on in the morning. What, <laughs> what, what quality is that of women? Yeah, no, I think that's, um, we have the same argument in my, my family as well. So um, I certainly understand that. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those, you know, elements where just there, there's a sense that comes to a place, like you said earlier, um, where it feels like there's something harmonious and where it feels, even to the degree of talking about things like a sanctuary, um, you know, we love sort of that hotel effect. I mean, how many times do people say, you know, I want my, my main bedroom to feel like a hotel um, or the main bathroom, you know, all of that, I think. Um, master, master bathroom. Sense of being, <laughs> uh, being pampered. Yes, the master bathroom. Um, but I think that... Um, yeah, it's really this desire to make our homes a sanctuary and to feel like attention and care and detail are, are really being attended to and to show that our, our love for others through that. And we also have women that love to do that through their cooking, mm-hmm. um, you know, who are just amazing cooks. And, you know, you, they're in there slaving away and you think they're they're just working so hard and they're miserable. And then you see the delight on their face when, you know, their their loved ones are eating an amazing meal. Um, so, yes, it, it is a, that question of going the extra mile for those that we love and wanting to, to nourish them and um, help them, be, you know, be the people that God meant them to be by giving them this environment where they can grow so, you know, well and easily. Now, of course, those are not the only things that go into it, but those, I think, are really fundamental pieces of, in terms of, of raising a family and helping them um, understand order and harmony and whatnot. Some, in my experience, my I, I tend to go overboard when it comes to my house and my garden. Like I, I do, I worry about it too much and I think about it too much. And, I, and I'm always trying to rein myself in and say, um, how much of this is me wanting to have the most, you know, peaceful and harmonious and lovely home for my family? And how much is it just vanity, right? Like if yeah. I love, if I can have eight beautiful f- fruit trees in my garden, why can't I have 10, you know, or 12? <laughs> how far does this have right. to go? What do you think about that balance? You know, I think that balance is just going to be a, a piece of every woman's life. There's so many things between time and money and vanity and necessity and need um, that just really go into it. And I, I know I have that struggle myself. In fact, I've this summer I've uh, uh, employed my sons to take care of my garden for me because I just haven't had time for it. Otherwise, it probably would have all gone to seed. But um, it's, you know, those little ways in which we try to really balance things out and, um, you know, figure out what, where the priorities are. And sometimes we're in seasons of life where the garden just can't be the focus. You know, mm-hmm. it's gotta be something that we put down, down the road. Um, other times we have the capacity to focus on something, um, external like that, or maybe it's, it feels more vital. Maybe it's something that, 
that's where your prayer time is. So um, I think it just comes down to the to individual and just feeling like you're working within your means, um, whether it's time or money, and um, really focused on growing in virtue. And I think that, you know, there's nothing like a garden to, to show us how to to really raise children. Um, and that, that's just an important element that so many people, you know, are fed by and why I love even the fact that my own sons are beginning to understand that concept of nourishment. Carrie, tell us about your, the, the, the book, um, at the sea. What, what, why the sea? What's the connection of the sea to femininity, to our religion? Yeah, no. So that this third book, Theology of Home at the Sea, um, has been, was just really a delight to work on. Um, the, the, the big thing was really thinking about the sea is obviously such a big and immense topic, something that we loved. But we thought, how do we how do we tackle this from a very feminine perspective, from a very womanly perspective? Because, of course, there's so much about the sea that's super masculine, you know, thinking about Moby Dick or um, the Master and Commander series or, you know, any of those this great literature that's that has been written about navies and, you know, all mm-hmm. kinds of things, um, wars and whatnot. Um, so we really wanted to press into how do we look at, at women from this perspective. And so obviously much of it has to do with recreation and, and you know, those great memories that are made with families at the beach. Um, but there's also certain things like the nature of the sea that we have to respect that I think, you know, people like surfers and, and sailors respect the ocean. They understand the waves, they understand the danger, but we don't always think about that when we're, we're talking about women and the, the, the nature of womanhood. Um, you know, instead we're sort of polluting it with, with different chemicals and trying to overcome the nature of womanhood instead of really working with the, the human nature that God has created. So it was fun to look into that. It was also we took we brought brought in, you know, people like Penelope from um, the Odyssey. You know, she's there's this very faithful woman who's waited for her husband some 20 odd years um, to return from from his Odyssey. And um, so we looked at that. We also talked to a woman um, that I know from Poland that her whole family was they were all in worked on the sea in one capacity or another. Um, so it was just really interesting to sort of dive into this from a woman's perspective, but also kind of get some more just insights into to womanhood through exploring this this one theme. Well, these are delightful books, Carrie. Thank you for writing them and for making them so beautiful. They're they're perfect coffee table items because when you have a, a guest and you you welcome them with hospitality in your beautiful, orderly, peaceful home, <laughs> which is a garden growing saints. Um, then those are the beautiful books that people pick up on your coffee table and, and come away even more refreshed. So thank you. And where can our listeners find your books? Um, the, the, they can certainly go to theologyofhome.com and uh, purchase them there. I'm always happy to sign them for people. Um, or they can be bought on Amazon or Tan Books or any place that, that Catholic books are sold. And on your, and on your website, is there more um, explanation and, and writing about Theology of Home? Yeah, no, absolutely. All of our books are there, but we also have a, a daily blog that we use a lot of the insights from Theology of Home to send out to readers on a daily basis. Um, we're, we're trying to help women really understand what it means to be women and to be faithful and to, to be homemakers, in, um, even if being home isn't the only thing that you do, but it's an important element, I think, for all of us. What a wonderful project, Carrie. I can't think of anything more important right now, especially in the state of the world. We have to make our, our homes as as just lovely as possible, the, the place where everybody wants to come back to. 
It's true. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation, the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when Jesus will give a pagan woman the greatest compliment he ever gave anyone. It's the type of tribute he wanted to give to every one of his fellow Jews, the accolade he wants to bestow on every Christian, the commendation he wants to say to each of us now and later when we meet him face to face. Great is your faith. Jesus' praise of the woman in this Sunday's gospel wasn't cheap. It was the result of the way the woman responded to the terrible predicament of having a possessed daughter and all the problems that likely contributed to that possession and followed upon it. Jesus' admiration was also the result of her dialogue with him that would have tested her faith to the limit. It was the end result of a process of growth and faith that culminated with Jesus' amazed acclaim. In Sunday's Gospel, we're able to enter the scene and learn from the Syrophoenician woman how we too can grow in faith so that our faith too may become genuinely great. The question we ought to ask at the outset, however, is whether our faith is great or small or just average right now. Are we living by faith part-time or full-time? Is our relationship with our triune God the most important aspect of our self-identity? Jesus once wondered aloud whether, when he returned, he would find faith on earth. If Jesus were to come right now, would he compliment us like he praised the Canaanite woman? Or would he say of us what he often said of some of his closest followers, as we heard last Sunday, O you of little faith? Most of us, if we're honest, might respond like the man whose son Jesus healed a possession to whom Jesus said, Everything's possible to one who has faith, and who replied, Lord, I do believe, help my unbelief. This Sunday, Jesus gives us that assistance through his interaction with this Syrophoenician woman. We see her great faith shine and grow in three tests Jesus gave her. The first test happened when she went up to Jesus and called out, Have pity on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. In response to that Kyrie eleison, Jesus just gave silence. St. Matthew, an eyewitness, tells us he didn't say a word in answer to her. It seems almost a cruel thing to do to a desperate mom. Jesus, however, who almost certainly was prepared to work the exorcism, wanted to effectuate another miracle that day, a greater one for the woman, for the disciples with him, and for all of us. To do that, though, he needed to try her faith. He did so first by his silence. Even though he was seeming to ignore her, the woman didn't give up. Her second attempt was intercession. She ran up to the disciples and asked them to intervene. We can imagine her grabbing on their clothes and arms, raising her voice, begging their assistance. The disciples had had it. They approached Jesus and said, send her away for she keeps calling out after us. They're asking Jesus to work a miracle just to get rid of a bothersome lady. Jesus refused their advances too. He said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus treated her as if she were a pagan have-not. It would have been easy for her to wallow in self-pity and go away dejected. 
It would have been easy for her out of frustration and disappointment to call Jesus and the apostles hypocrites and heartless. But she wasn't going to give up. Having been rebuffed that second time, she ran up to Jesus, fell down on her stomach before him and begged, Lord, help me. Help is one of the most poignant expressions that exist in any language. Most people come running when a woman begs for help. Jesus, however, responded, It's not right to take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs. We don't know if Jesus said this with a wink in his eye or with a tone in his voice to soften it. But the expression Jesus used was hugely insulting. In the ancient world, most dogs were stray, eating your trash, going to the bathroom at your front door, attacking kids when they were playing in the field. To call someone a stray dog in contrast to children was about the most denigrating thing that could have been said. Many of us, if we had been called by Jesus something like that, might have just stopped in our tracks and wept or sought to defend our disrespected dignity. This woman didn't. Instead, unbelievably, she agreed with Jesus. Yes, Lord, she said. But even the little dogs eat the scraps that fall from the table of their masters. She changed Jesus' word dog into little dog, saying that even puppies and chihuahuas eat the crumbs that fall from the kid's table. She was essentially saying that even if she and her daughter were insignificant little dogs incessantly barking, even if they were not worthy to receive what the children of the king receive, she was professing her faith that Jesus was indeed king, lord, and good shepherd of the tiniest poodles. And even the littlest crumb of his mercy would be enough to work the exorcism of his daughter. Jesus was deeply moved by the woman's persistence, trust, and deep theological understanding. So he proclaimed what had been gradually revealed over the course of their dialogue. O woman, great is your faith. Her faith was not crumb-like in size. It wasn't the size of a mustard seed. It was much bigger. And faith like that, Jesus said elsewhere, can move mountains. Jesus then worked the miracle the woman had been requesting and did so at a distance. Let it be done for you as you wish. An echo of what another woman of great faith, his mother, had said to the Archangel Gabriel. St. Matthew tells us that the woman's daughter was healed from that very instant. But the mother didn't know that until she returned home. So that was the last test of faith. To go on her way, trusting that what the Lord said would take place. Sometimes the Lord uses similar non-conventional difficult means to help us grow in faith. He often responds to our petitions with silence. Today we can ask, when we pray and don't seem to get a response, how do we handle it? Do we give up, stop praying, think God doesn't care and drift away? What God is often doing in these circumstances is giving us a chance to learn how to pray perseveringly so that we may grow in faith and perseverance in general. And Jesus would like us to respond with a perseverance similar to the woman. When we encounter favoritism in the church, people who only want to serve the lost sheep of whatever fold they're interested in, when we don't seem to be in the in crowd, when we're not treated in accordance with our dignity as the Lord's sons and daughters, do we storm off in anger? Do we sulk? Or do we persist? When people who are supposed to be acting in Jesus' name insult us accidentally or seemingly intentionally, when they call us dogs or worse, when they scandalize us compared with the way we anticipate these 
spiritual figure should behave to allow it to lead us to commit spiritual suicide, cutting ourselves off from Christ? Or do we continue to draw out the good in people with holy intransigence and wit? At the most general level of all, when we encounter contradictions to our faith, when our prayer doesn't seem to work, when those we count on initially don't respond as we hoped, do we continue to fight the good fight and keep the faith, or abandon both fight and faith? Today, as students are in various places returning to school, as many employees are returning from vacation, as classes to become Catholic are about to recommence, the Lord wants us to convert these new beginnings into opportunities for our faith to grow. He teaches us that the path to become great in what is most important in life is not an easy path or expected, but one that's meant to forge us in a crucible to become truly heroic in our loving trust in God and our loving care for others. This Sunday at Mass, we'll meet the same Lord the Canaanite woman did. He will not give us leftover crumbs from a table, but will nourish us first with every word that comes from his mouth and then with himself as the bread of life. Let's ask him to give us the grace of holy perseverance in prayer, in the Christian life, and in the grace of faith, so that the Lord may say of us today, tomorrow, and at the day comes for us, great is your faith. Give us a seat with all the heroes of faith at the eternal banquet of God's children. May your faith be great in mine too. God bless you. Thank you, Father. To learn more about Father Landry, check out his website. It's called catholicpreaching.com, and make sure to catch his writings at EWTN's National Catholic Register, where he's a regular contributor. A big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that our conversations have consequences and that those consequences are fabulous for you. Go with our prayers. Morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. 